Hey folks, you're hearing my voice at the top of the show, which must mean we're doing an ad for a Blu-ray release. This episode is brought to you by the Criterion Collection's new Blu-ray release of The Naked Prey. It's the 1965 Cornell Wilde film. I don't know much about it, only heard about it recently uh, from this release, but man, does it sound right up AYT's uh, interests. Uh, it sounds like something that preceded uh, Surviving the Game and, and uh, Hard Target, movies like that from our youth. So yeah, sounds very good. Excited to check up with The Naked Prey. And now there's a great opportunity to do that with this Blu-ray release. So we thank Criterion for continuing to support this podcast. Now on with the show. This year Halloween fell on a weekend. Me and Ghetto Boys are trick-or-treating. Robbing little kids for bags. Till an old man got behind our ass. So we speeded up the pace. Took a look back and he was right before our face. Hello and welcome to Adjust Your Tracking. I'm Eric McClanahan. I'm Joe Von Oppen. Adjust Your Tracking is brought to you by the Playlist Podcast Network. We're a part of that network. You can find us and all of our other shows at theplaylist.net or on your podcatcher of choice. Just go ahead and search uh, for the Playlist Podcast Network. So, uh, Joe, house cleaning's out of the way. I was just telling you off mic, uh, I just I spent a little time with family this last week and yeah. wasn't so much catching up on kid movies, but was sort of, you know, forced between a rock and a hard place. I had to kind of watch kid movies to, you know, placate my niece that was here. And uh, nice uh, it, it, well, thank you. I, I try my best. Um, I wasn't happy doing a lot of it, but uh, I, I guess I'm lucky that um, this, this week's episode, it, it really... <laughs> It was a nice, hard uh, pivot in the other direction um, because I saw saw a few movies with some a lot of people dying in in these movies. So it was a, it was a nice hard left to the other direction. Yeah, yeah, it was a uh, it, it's it's real brutality. Like the first film we're going to be discussing, I think because it was made for like a, this occurred to me while watching it. It's another Netflix premiere, mm-hmm. though it had its sort of initial run. In some some festivals like uh, Fantastic Fest and stuff like that, mm-hmm. but it's the the new film by uh, collaborator of Gareth Evans, uh, Timo Jahanto. Nice, and uh, it's called "The Night Comes for Us." He's responsible for other films like Killers and Headshot, um, both of which are also on Netflix. But because uh, it, it was developed for Netflix through, I think, a production deal from XYZ Films, who was also responsible for the film that we covered last week, The Apostle. I don't know if they have to abide by rating standards. And like halfway through, I was like, well, this is a fucking X-rated movie for strictly violence, like yeah. already. And this movie's <laughs> halfway over. Like, so like I wonder if there is any of those restrictions. Like it clearly doesn't have to abide by the rating system. You can maybe like qualify it as like this is for mature. This is for so you were wise to avoid your you know six year old niece watching knives get just like dug into every part of human being a human being's body. Like so many knives, My nightmarishly, God. yeah. <laughs> So, so this film that we'll we'll talk about uh, briefly is like it's it's another in the sort of series of raid type films where um, <clears throat> the premise is like relatively thin, you know, just uh, as with like the raid where it's a team of police going into um, like a drug raid in this like contained building. They get trapped in it. They have to fight their way out. This could all be introduced in the first ten minutes. Here we go. Oh my God, stop killing each other. And then with headshot, a guy wakes up after a head injury, has to put together why people are trying to kill him. We're off to the races. This one, uh, there is, uh, takes place in Indonesia again, mm-hmm. where the, a crime triad has like a, a series of enforcers, one of which turns on the rest of the enforcers when a child's life is in jeopardy. He rescues the child. He's then the target of the crime organization. We're off to the races. These are all just setups to watch incredibly well executed fight sequences play out. And when yeah. I say incredibly well, like they're dizzying and they are like cramp inducingly tense. Like that's <laughs> what I tried to tell you 
last week and I was like, Hey, you might want to stretch before watching the night comes for us. Cause like, I just was convulsing and tensing up so much that I was like, ah, my, my, I think I have a cramp from sitting here and watching this movie. (laughs) And it's like, it's a level of savagery and brutality that is like a new threshold that is like electric, you know? And it's like, it's sort of re like we, we talk about, films resensitizing you you know because you were mentioning before we even started today how like i felt like you were pretty numb is that what you said yeah desensitized desensitized yeah okay so this this does that it resensitizes you through like a new brutality that like you it's pushed to incredibly impressive limits but i don't know that i ever want to see it go any further than this yeah you know yeah I mean, I felt, weren't we saying that when the first raid came out? I, I feel like there was an element of, of yeah. us commenting on like, I don't know if it can go any further than this. And we've been proven wrong again and again. And it's specifically from this little part of the world, this pocket of the world where filmmaking seems to be kind of this kind of filmmaking, this action filmmaking is booming because of the raids relative crossover success, you know, uh, uh, I think on our next episode, we're going to dive into foreign films and their struggle in the modern day box office to have any kind of crossover. Um, and yeah. Raid was a small example uh, when it came out, but uh, that has opened the doors because we have several of the actors from the Raid movies. We have uh, Timo, the the director, I believe he's worked on the Raid movies and was co-director, I think, with Gareth Evans on that VHS2 segment, which is... An yeah. incredible short film. Uh, I referenced that last episode. That one's on Netflix too. So um, it's cool to see that the you know that this it's booming. These got, but the most impressive thing to take away from this beyond the like incredible next level violence of like if you can handle that is like these are the I don't even think it's close. These are the most impressive stunt people just working in in movies right now. And yeah. it's so it's so like night and day that I can think of an American action film that has great stunts from this year and also kind of on par with The Night Comes for Us in terms of like, did I really care about what was happening to the characters or the story? No. But man, this is like an amazing action reel was the Mission Impossible movie from this year. Right. Um, and that is it's, it's interesting to see these two movies of like uh, that Mission Impossible movie rightfully has gotten a lot of hype, uh, a lot of attention for its insane action and its stunts. And it's very good in that department, but there's just nothing like the kinetic the, I'm going to use that word frenzy again that you talked about uh, with Gareth Evans. There's just nothing like that kinetic frenzy. uh, The way the camera work is just in sync with these characters as they fight. Um, It should be exhausting. It, well, let's say it is exhausting to watch this movie. The night comes for Mm us yet. It's like that's kind of the idea. It is just an it is just one basic idea to get you from one sequence to the next. Mileage is going to vary for people, but if you're into even keeping up with what the modern day action movie might look like right now, I, I feel like you can't you can't ignore this movie. You have to see like what's going on. It it might. I think part of me has this thing where I'm like, God, I wish. Um, I wish a better storyteller could team up with this director because I think Gareth Evans is not like by any means the best uh, screenwriter or the best storyteller, but I think he's a little bit more in tune to a narrative's uh, needs than, than Timo, this director. Um, But yeah, the stuff he makes up for is like doubling down on the insane action. And um, you know, you take, you take the good with the bad and uh, yeah, again, I just don't think you can deny this movie. Yeah, I think that like a movie like Mission Impossible, whose subtitle I don't remember, Rogue, uh, Rogue, Rogue Shadows. No, Fallout. Uh, this one's Fallout. Fallout, great, perfect, <laughs> um, perfectly forgettable. Uh, <laughs> like, there's no denying that, like in the bathroom sequence. P.S. I haven't seen this movie. The fight choreography is clearly like lifting from the tradition of like the raid movies and the the headshots and stuff like that. There's just a level of like in intensity and assault. That's like, that is clearly an escalation from like the sort of born identity combat that we were getting like all too uh, accustomed and numb to like in the sort of two thousands. Yep. And um, yeah, it's just interesting. Like 
watching these set pieces play out because like, you know, it isn't necessarily threaded together by a compelling narrative. There are people that you come to like as your sort of touchstones of like who, who is the through line in this sort of like melee of just like flying bodies and brutality. But like, you know, like there, there isn't a sort of uh, narrative connectiveness to like, to, you know, characters and story and like it, it could benefit from being fleshed out more, but as it stands as like a series of experiments, they're like dizzying and overwhelming. It's like a live action Wiley coyote cartoon, you know, with <laughs> Paul Verhoeven's practical effects from the 1980s, just oh splattering yes. blood over everybody. <laughs> I, I didn't think that RoboCop could be beaten for like the most amount of squibs to go off. Like when a character gets shot, but this movie just yeah. destroys or that. stabbed <laughs> or repeatedly stabbed, gouged or uh, a, a guy picks up a, a what happens? A guy picks up a cow hoof at a butcher. There's a fight in like a, like a butcher place, whatever butcher you, shop. yeah, <laughs> thank you. And <laughs> butcher place, shop. And the, the dude grabs like a pig's hoof or a cow hoof and just starts destroying people with it. And it's that level of pretty much cartoonish absurdity where I think you know that these filmmakers here making these movies in Indonesia are in on, they're having fun and you kind of need those little bits because it's so relentlessly, it would be like too grim otherwise. And it, I Mm -hmm. think at times the re the unrelenting savagery does make it a little grim where I'm like, ah, just like, I don't know if I feel good about this, but then you'll get these moments of life where you're like, okay, yeah, they're they're, They want to entertain. They just also want to up the ante. And, um, right. There's another thing of like, um, you, you brought up the Bourne movies, which were had a lot of fight choreography that was steeped in that Paul Greengrass, uh, at least the, the, the parts two and three, especially when, Paul Greengrass did those is you couldn't always tell what was going on, but the idea of the chaotic shaky cam was to yeah. give you the immersive feel you were there. That gets just blown out of the water when you see what like Gareth Evans and, and Timo, this director, I'm just going to keep calling him by his first name, uh, what they were doing. <laughs> exactly what they're doing with these films, because there's like, you can see what's going on and yet there's still a chaotic, insanity going on with the camera work with the fight choreography um and well yeah because the the energy is frenetic but like the the staging and the like just the capturing of it is completely coherent so it's just like you feel the vibratory energy of like "Ah, i can't handle this like but you're you're completely clear on what's going on whose arms getting broken, who's getting a piece of glass shoved into their face. Oh my God. He's knocked out with a cue ball. Like, repeatedly. Oh yeah. Just owning Steven Seagal from, uh, is that marked for death? They're just taking Good a try death. out for justice. Damn it. I tried to play in the Von yeah, Oppen. As soon pool. as they walk into like a pool hall, I was like, Oh, well this is an homage. Clearly. And <laughs> Steven, Seagal, Steven Seagal already winded in 1991. <laughs> circles run around him i thought about that i was like seagal is cool in that scene like legitimately that's a cool scene in my memory he takes the you know the the cue balls or whatever and beats some guys up but yeah he's the puffy steven seagal of that era like he just these guys would run circles around him and he was an action star 20 30 years ago i it's it's amazing like athletics you know like watching the nba now or football you're seeing these stunt actors that are just so physically capable, more capable of things than even people were a few decades ago. Yeah. Um, and the technology is keeping up with that to, to capture it, that Mm -hmm. it's, it's very exciting. Um, but yeah, it just, it makes, it makes even once previous, very badass scenes look very quaint, uh, uh, by comparison. And, um, you know, there, there's something to be said for, um, you know we're gonna we're gonna talk about this new Halloween movie here in the uh, the, the the majority of this episode, and you know the original was known uh, partly for sort of masking the violence. You didn't see that much. Uh, definitely yeah. a style from the past that you know I I do really appreciate. But there's something to be said for <laughs> this. The night comes for us where it's like we can show you all of this and we can make it look realistic. You know, using a mix of like digital blood, digital effects but also insane stunt work and choreography to, to sell it. Um, 
And as much as the effects and the technology help sell the the onslaught of just gore, unblinking gore, it really is the way the actors dance with it and sell the punches. They sell the hits. Guys look like they take real like falls and hit things. Like it, it's that mm-hmm. same thing where like, how did anybody come away walking okay after working on this movie? So um it's it's great. It's it's great in that sense of just being the the overwhelming like sensory overload of mm-hmm. of something like the night comes for us is like it's just like what you're there for. But um yeah, be, it will resensitize even the most numb viewer because I, I feel like I, I hit that sometimes. And uh, yeah, this this movie I, I I should have stretched based on your warning, and uh, it, it was good advice. <laughs> it's very good yeah. advice. No problem. Um, <laughs> Well, I just wanted to pivot real quick um, yes. to because like the the level of hyperkineticism and frenzy and pushing things to a brink, like violence wise and mayhem wise, reminded me of the remake of Evil Dead that came out in yes. was 2012 or 2013. I'll, I'll check, but yes. Um, and how like that that movie like in you know just in the sort of decades now that movies have been being sort of repackaged and resold and their inferior recreations of things that were iconic and sort of kicked a door down like the the few remakes that actually function as their own kind of singular thing are like you know the evil dead remake which i think was was a solid kind of introduction to a new um filmmaker fide alvarez who uh who like he just he brought something new, something feral and something kind of like, you know, like really overwhelming to uh, a a movie that like, you know, the original when it came out, like there was something to the woozy experimental camera work that sort of unsettled audiences and this sort of like the the exaggerated camp of it sort of like was just a new kind of like cocktail for like midnight movie audiences to take in but like that you know i don't know how much that movie uh would work on an uninitiated audience anymore you know like i think it's fun but in order to sort of resonate in order to sort of like kind of announce itself coming through the door that was opened by the original it has to do something kind of like new and i felt like the the new it did bring a level of frenzy, not unlike the movies we were talking about from yeah. Indonesia, just a, a level of like feral brutality that like I found myself, I probably was screaming out loud when <laughs> we went to the screening, the press screening years ago. I was like, no, nah! like it was just was like splattery and <laughs> intense and overwhelming and impressive in that regard, because there was something kind of like athletic about its intensity. Yes. And, um, that's it's a, it's an interesting like entry point to how you approach a legacy like Halloween, right? Because you know? like why that movie, uh, why that series doesn't have its own kind of uh, Never Sleep Again, Crystal Lake Memories treatment because it's yeah. changed so much. Like I don't know what whether what other series has started stopped been rebooted and then reboot the reboot where it tracks back to cancel certain sequels out (laughs) it's just like the legacy of it and how the story's changed and now we're dealing with halloweens in parallel universes not really um but there is something kind of weird about like uh we're just gonna ignore the halloween sequels from two up and this is the sequel to the original huh like what how (laughs) I wonder how much like an uninitiated audience has to backload it with a series of explanations to be like, what's this about? Right. What's but I, I saw part four. Does this not? Nope. Doesn't apply anymore. That right. And that doesn't exist. And part three, which has nothing to do with anything involving the other like <laughs> narratives, like just disregard that. It's a fun movie in its own way, but it doesn't play into anyway, moving on, you know, like it's just <laughs> a sort of confusing set of like details about this universe. I, I wonder if a lot of what we're seeing, what, like the reason we're able to get the Halloween movie we're, we're talking about the one that just came out that does just disregard 
uh, all previous movies except for that original, right? That That's it. You don't need to know. You can just forget, which I, I think that's going to work in favor, and it has proven to at the box office that I think most of the audience just doesn't even remember what might have happened in this bizarre series as it's gone on. Well, the original is so spare in what it's like. You, that, like, Even if you haven't seen the original, which, you know, you and I are both heartily recommending you do so before you catch up with Halloween oh, yes. Yes. 2018, which doesn't have any signifying title to it to like, you know, dis- like to delineate it from the original. It's just like Halloween. What's the sequel called? Halloween. Right. Huh? Oh, okay. Well, that makes sense. Don't confuse um, it with the Rob Zombie Halloween. <laughs> yeah. Or Halloween too. I, this is really confusing. Um, <laughs> so the simplicity of the original um, and how it was just essentially like setting up a, a nightmare circumstance where we're introduced to the w- the POV of what we'll soon to understand is a child serial killer. And then like we revisit him 15 years later after he escapes from an institution. There's no motivation ever given to the to the killer who will later learn as Michael Myers. Um And like, because of that, because there is no motivation, there is just this menace, this force he's described as the shape, I believe in the credits, he's like something that's like moving through like this quiet community in Illinois, this idyllic suburb. And he's just like this imposition on this, like this ideal. And like, you never know what's driving him. He has no clear motivation other than, terrifying and killing people. (laughs) And like, I think that simplicity lends itself to, uh, to like, to pick, you can easily pick it up because there, there isn't backloaded with a lot of like expositional, you know, stuff that you need to constantly fill a new uninitiated audience in with. There's a leanness, there's a simplicity and there's a beauty to how well it worked in 1978. 40 years ago. Um, But there's also the idea that it was never, John Carpenter never intended it to be a a series. He, this was like a one off thing to him. Sure. He wanted it to do well, but like, there's something about the, the simplicity, the leanness, the, that like, it's, it's so terrifying. And And the more you revisit the terror, the more you are going to have to explain it. Cause why are we coming back to it? Like right. you have to, that's why like the sequel started to take these like turns where it's like, uh, they're siblings. Really? Yeah, what? Right. Why? Like, I don't know. Cause we needed an idea, you know? And then like at some point, I think like at in part six, like a cult is actually responsible yeah. for like summoning the evil spirit of Michael Myers or something like that. It's like a de- yeah, it's a, a druid curse. So it's something in the stars that re- that essentially conjures Michael Myers. It's why he can't die, and it's all connected back to one of the doctors in the first film that Donald Pleasance talks with. It's so ridiculous, like so- sort of trying to retroactively alter you know a narrative in that way. It's it's very weird how like much it got deconstructed and uh, put back together in a really pretty sloppy way, <laughs> for sure. Well- Yes. So, so to, to have a a sequel to a movie, I mean, I think this might be the longest gulf. Like if you, if you are intended to disregard the other sequels, which John Carpenter has even said, as you mentioned off mic that like he's, he said, there's never been a good Halloween sequel. (laughs) Um, If you were to disregard them, like part one, Halloween, 1978, like of, when has there been a 40 year gap between like installments? You yeah. know what I mean? I was just like, looking up the hustler and the color of money, but that's like 25 years and that's a huge gap. So yeah, yeah, not, yeah. I, don't, I don't know if there is. Ooh, so, wizard of Oz and return to Oz. That's about as, that's like a 40 oh, year gap. There it is. That's the one that might be the um, only one <laughs> should have done a hold up on return to Oz. I want to. Yeah. I think we have, we've mentioned it before. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. But like, okay, so so with this new film uh, brought to us by David Gordon Green, somebody yes. we've talked about at length, and uh, 
co-written with David Gordon Green by Danny McBride, an actor who, you know, we love and a writer. We've we've come to really appreciate just a, a presence in film and television that we 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 love. Um, there I think that David Gordon Green is he's an interesting pick because he is kind of a chameleon, like in terms of like the types of films he can pick up and like bring his 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 touch to it while not like while still delivering some set of expectations and like the Halloween like series has sets of expectations It has a baggage with it. And especially if you're approaching specifically the first one, there is something deliberate about the approach, like, yeah. because they're, they are disregarding all the other films. They're going back to the dynamic of what made the first one work, the simplicity of it, the leanness of it, the main character, um, Laurie Strode played by Jamie Lee Curtis. This is now her 40 years later, like in the, in the sort of grips of PTSD. And she's become a Sarah Connor type survivor who is kind of defined by her, her trauma and reacting against it in a sort of, you know, fierce manner. Um, but she's also, you know, she's seen by the outside world as imprisoned by her paranoia. Mm. So like this, this re this approach that's so deliberate. Um, it's interesting because like you, you had mentioned yesterday that you're like, you missed the elegance of the original. Yeah. The simple how, elegance of it. Yeah. Yeah. And it's just like, can like, because that movie was, essentially left alone like it was a it was an exploitation movie it was made with like very like minimal means like i think it was like a quarter of a million dollars to make it something like that yeah and like it was just like someone approached him with the idea of calling you know they're like the babysitter murders this is what it's going to be you know this is the premise and like that original sort of like working concept is recalled in this new iteration. So there's lots of like, you know, kind of references and riffs on the original all over this new one. Yeah. But like coming in and making a sort of, you know, down and dirty, but you know, still elegant, quiet building horror movie at the time. Like it just felt left alone to do something that hadn't been done before. And in doing something that hadn't been done before, it resonated with an audience that like they weren't expecting. Like they, of course, like you set out to do a movie, you wanted to do well, you wanted to connect. But I think I, I heard John Carpenter say like, he expected it to come and go within like a weekend. Like <laughs> it would come out, play drive-ins, disappear fine. But like, it kept going and it kept building an audience. And have you listened to the, like the recordings of people responding to the movie? Yes. Where it's overlaid. Yeah. Yeah. Overlaid with the images at the end of the movie. It's so good. That was like a blast to watch that. Yeah. 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 The reveals of like this, the sort of big scare moments you hear, like if you, if you want to look it up, it's just like Halloween audiences, like 1979, I think is when like the actual year it was. Cause it, you know, movies used to play for forever back then. Um, you can hear them so, yelling at the screen when Michael is rising back up. It's so great. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And that just that level of like, you know, in rewatching it, you know, just this last weekend, it's there's, there's a quiet that's possible that like, I don't know if like, unless that's something you're deliberately setting out to do and something that therefore audiences have to like readjust themselves to the deliberateness of the quiet you're choosing. Mm. Cause there's certainly like slow burn horror movies that, you know, that people like Ty West are sort of known for at this point. Yeah. And this sort of like indie I- indie horror scene are sort of like, you know, a, a big part of now. I'm, that's probably not even true anymore. Like this seems like four or five years ago at this point, but, <laughs> but like there's that, that elegance that you referred to. It's like, there's just something kind of like, that's so carefully paced in this, in the, in the 1978 film. Mm-hmm. And like, it's just, is that even possible anymore? Mm-hmm. So like this, this discussion of like, how do you show us something new the way like the night comes for us shows us, a level of brutality that we didn't want to imagine was possible, but we're still sort of like 
adrenalized by its introduction, albeit terrified and sort of bummed out afterwards. Um, how do you, how do you like give an audience what the original did? Can you anymore? And so in like in this, in approaching the the new film, the opening sequence is, you know, nothing like the the opening of Halloween. Because you can't do that again. You can't right. you can't launch into the score of like because the, the first movie opens with the score. It's yeah. like and you're like, oh shit, we're like off to the races. Like here we dark. go. The orange yeah. text starts to pop up. Oh, it's yeah. so good. You're just plunged headfirst immediately. And then you're in what you're not sure is someone's POV shot. And then it becomes like increasingly clear that this is someone who's casing a house, goes into the house, and then ends up murdering what turns out to be his sister. This is a child murderer. And you're in the, you're in the POV of this person, which is like something that was, you know, we, we watched like in Psycho, you know. Mm-hmm. We, we didn't at the time you and I weren't <laughs> around yet, but um, you know, like psycho was a big precursor to Halloween. Like John Carpenter admits that like, you know, Hitchcock was like, he was a huge influence on like all the sort of big directors from that era. Right. <clears throat> and so the, the riff on sort of like classical cinema in that regard is just like, that's, that's that departure. And so when you look at the departure or, you know, like taking, taking the old Halloween as an entry point to someplace new, like let's start to look at like what, what is new about this iteration of it? Mm. You know, the, the title sequence that we like talked about yesterday (laughs) where you're literally, it's like so much of this movie does echo images, echo moments from the original movie. And this you're watching a flattened pumpkin, um, which like in the original title sequence from the 1978 version, you're watching a jack-o'-lantern flicker in the dark yeah. while the credits are rolling. And it's like the score is sort of like menacing you and you're just watching this like jack-o'-lantern alone in the dark and the sort of creepy like ambiance it provides as the camera pushes in and gets closer and closer. So now like that same iconic image it's smashed either by rotting over time or somebody literally smashed it, but you watch it slowly rise and reform. So it's like, that's pretty clear what they're doing to me. It's just like this series has been flattened by time. Yeah. Like it's been crushed by whatever, by like, by, by efforts, like by, misattempts and like and just bad movies or just slowly over time it's just diminished but like we're pumping it back up to something muscular and something big bigger than life but it's also not real it's a digital effect it's a fake pumpkin the original was a real pumpkin like to me this is like the difference between the two yeah and it's just like but you can't watch it reform like, well, I guess you could, I guess you could time lapse and reverse as it closes in. You're like, Oh, this is fake. This yeah. is digital. This is a sort of muscular reamping of like something that we, we, we remember. And like, that's, I think at its weakest, that's what it is. It's just a sort of <clears throat> muscular sort of reapproach of some of a formula that worked as opposed to like, can you have another Halloween like experience, a movie that, sneaks up in an audience that is essentially left alone as it's being developed and kicks a new door down for audiences to be sort of bowled over by to make those same scream noises that they did in 1978 and 1979 when it was surprising them. My first thought was I was going to reference get out as something as like a horror film that was an original concept, but I don't know if that movie, I love that film. We both do. We, we, but I don't know if it's terrifying in the way that the original Halloween is it, it might be more of like it lingers longer. It has more to it, more thematic weight to it than the first Halloween. And that's what gives that its power. And, you know, that was really reassuring to see a small genre movie like that, that like captured the imagination and went, you know, all the way into like award season. Like that's really exciting. Yeah. That's really cool. It, it, I guess in some ways it can happen, but yeah, do we get, will we get another, like something like the original Halloween? I don't know. And I think in many ways, I think this is kind of what's most interesting and clever about this sequel is that there, there, 
like beyond the sort of references and callbacks to the original film where uh, Michael Myers is watching Jamie Lee Curtis in school in this movie, you get her granddaughter looking out the window and it's Jamie Lee Curtis in the Michael Myers position. Like a lot of moments like that, that will flip subvert and are using it in a way that's actually really like skillful to, um, because you start to realize the more you watch the original Halloween, that it's a movie that shifts perspectives. Like you're either Michael Myers perspective or Mm -hmm. you're the victims. And this one wants to give you almost entirely victim perspective, which I think is kind of, I hesitate to say like revelatory in the slasher genre. It's just like empathetic in a way that I think has been lacking in these movies. Yeah. Uh, The final girl is usually just the one that gets to survive at the end. And the way the cliches started to ramp up in the, in the slasher genre, especially through the eighties is like, it's the one, it was the pure girl, the one that, that, uh, wouldn't sleep around was the good kid, blah, blah, blah. Jamie Lee Curtis exemplified that in the first Halloween, but to see her arc 40 years later and, um, also, like uh, it's it's akin. I, I I'm pretty sure you still have not seen the uh, the Last Jedi, the Star Wars movie that uh, upset half the world, and the other half seemed to like it. Like me, is they're trying to do a similar thing with her character as to Luke Skywalker, where like you're seeing them much later than when you last saw them, and you're seeing the weight and the burden of time and. Mm-hmm. And, and things that are hanging on their shoulders. I think that's a really interesting place to go with a sequel in an age where it might not be possible to, to recreate something like the original Halloween that was simple to the point, but effective and scared people uh, and change things. I, I don't think we could do that, but what we can do is these little thematic variations on things or give you an arc with a, with another character. That's exciting. That's what's cool about this movie. Well, I think that's what it, I'm glad you brought up get out because like it, especially in like the last leg of Halloween, like they're to 2018, mind you, um, yeah. you know, there's like there is a focus on trauma and there's a focus on how trauma affects people and, and generations of people and how like, yeah, as much as it's maybe hinted at and suggested at in in various like horror films and various franchises like it's really dealt with in a a pretty thorough manner in this movie as lean as it is and as fast moving as it is it sort of deals with like genuine the genuine consequences of being a survivor of trauma and how that affects you know like people like just people beyond who it actually happened to and how it's passed on and like you know in the last leg where you're watching three generations of you know, this, this family and like who it started with, it was just like it, then it, it, it sort of established uh, a sort of like a genuine concern for the characters Yeah, that as the movie sort of dispatches was with people like in a, in a manner that's like pretty traditional in slasher movies it starts to feel like, Oh, I really can't deal with like this happening to these people. You know what I mean? Like, cause you care about them and that's an achievement. And that is a sort of like new entry point to like a, a very current concern, which is like, you know, predatory behavior, like having traumatic consequences for people as they try to, you know, continue in their lives and the strength that's required to like survive it. You know, and like mm. that, that became like a, a very like energizing point in the movie. Yeah. Um, but you know, there's also like hearkening back to the the simplicity of the original. There's also you know the sort of weird wooziness of like you know there this movie does have to have a more sort of like amped up body count because like this is for contemporary audiences. Contemporary art audiences are jaded and desensitized and so like there's actually a point where a character in sort of scream like fashion is like yeah i mean this was terrible that this happened 40 years ago but only a couple people died and you're just like and so like then the movie they that character is told to shut the fuck up like you know because it's terrible regardless Mm -hmm. um but the movie then starts to just like dispatch with people like people the characters like that aren't even characters they're just bystanders that are just like oh wow did i really need to see that person brutalized to that extent Mm. when the original movie didn't do that like you were talking about how 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 much like the 
the sort of on-screen violence is concealed in it to such a point where it's like, it wasn't in revisiting it. It wasn't like disappointing in any way. It's interesting. The same way, like you imagine a grisliness to the original Texas Chainsaw Massacre. That's mostly not there. Like there's that movie's like pretty bloodless in terms of like what it shows. It's all implied. And it's like, can you imply anymore? Like, or do you have to see a knife jutting out of someone's mouth that's been stabbed in the back of the head, you know, (laughs) by arguably a senior citizen Cyclops, which is what Michael Myers would be at that point. It's okay. Like, I don't, I don't need to know that he's, you know, I I believe that he's capable of all of this superhuman savagery. It's fine. I get it. (laughs) But like, yeah, it's just like, it's, it's an interesting kind of, like balance of like having these new, like impressive ideas that truly electrify and energize the, the, the movie. And like, especially the conclusion of the movie, Mm -hmm. which is like, it's like, it does that thing. I I read a criticism that was like, I wish the, the finale was a little more fleshed out and longer. When you think about it, the original, it's not either like it, like once the movie sort of ramps up, there's not much left in the movie. You've just sort of like, it's been paced so (laughs) carefully that when it turns this corner, you're like, ah, and then it like doesn't stop until like the closing credits. And, uh, and so like with this one, it's, it's the same thing where it'll all sort of like ramps up and there's, there's a genuine sort of like lift to the payoff. Yeah. You know? And I, I don't know. There's there they'll always dazzle you with ways to find a sequel, you know, like how are they gonna yeah. make a sequel to this? Because he's super destroyed from what I understand. But you know, they'll always find a way, especially with like how record breaking this movie did this weekend. Yeah, it's it's a concern because you can see them you know, the people at Blumhouse who just, this is a record opening for them. It made like 77 million. This is gigantic. I mean, the movie has a reported like $10 million budget. So it is a massive success already. Yeah. Um, it's going to be hard to say no to that. So what are they going to do? If like, I would say the really classy decision would be to let this one be a massive hit and let it be what it seems like it was intended for as the final statement on the Halloween series. And wouldn't it be great? I, I doubt this is going to happen, especially seeing as uh, there's a new it sequel coming. I saw a fucking pet cemetery remake trailer before this movie. Like we're in this age of more movies being remade. It's, it's probably a matter of time before jaws gets a remake, which I think is, or gets a sequel or something. And jaws and Halloween are sort of on equal ground in terms of they like did the same thing, yeah. like where they just like, they take the original as the jump off point and the, all the other Jaws sequels were just hallucinations we were having collectively as a culture. It's it's Brody's it's, uh, it's Brody's it's Chief Brody's uh, traumatized memories. All those sequels were just things that he thought could yeah. happen because he's been traumatized. Yeah, he shark. was dreaming about Jamaica um, <laughs> and yeah, being dead. And <laughs> he was dead in that one. He's like, I'm I'm not around anymore. But my wife and Mario Van Peebles and Michael Caine are here. It's quite a dream. Inexplicably. Yeah. Um, yeah. So. Um, yeah, I don't know, man. The, the series has been run through the ground so much. Hopefully they can just let this be the final statement on Halloween. It feels like it was designed on that. The, the whole idea of eliminating, disregarding the previous sequels so we can have this be a statement at the end of the first movie, but 40 years later gives it so much more, makes it feel appropriate. And the fact that they could even make a good sequel from this is is a, a pretty remarkable achievement. Even though like there were times where I thought like, Uh, like coming out of the movie yesterday, I was like, I feel like this movie's being hyped up quite a bit. Like there are people in in our critic circles that are really excited about this movie. I can't say I'm personally there, but there's a lot I respect about it. And I'm just glad that like, it wasn't a terrible sequel, which most of them have been to this point. Um, I feel like, I feel like this new Halloween really took, it was able to do this because of like all the stuff that's coming its way. I think it kind of cherry picks some of the best elements of okay or halfway decent sequels or even just bad ones like Halloween H2O, you know, from like 20 years ago, I think it was 1998. Um, that movie has Laurie Strode confronting Michael Myers in a somewhat similar way to this new one. And I like that it took what was good in the idea stage of Halloween H2O and really made it much more functional and appropriate to fit in with the first film. 
Uh, yeah. And Hollywood H2O is kind of goofy in hindsight. I remember liking it at the time, but like anything, I'm sure if I went back, it would just seem as like another pale in comparison sequel. Um, I think it also, this new one takes elements of, uh, and thankfully tones down the, like, uh, the, the, you, you call this one muscular, but I think it's got nothing on the, like 10 years earlier, the, the Rob Zombie remake that he did and his sequel, like those yeah. are, those are so like, I mean, that's the Rob Zombie style. It's very muscular. It's very metal in a way that's like, it's just very off putting, I think for a lot of audiences, um, that this one does not go. I mean, this one only has elements of that because it's a modern horror film and it's sort of stuck trying to deliver the things, as you've mentioned, delivering the expectations. Yeah. But, but I don't, th- it does try to have its foot in more of the elegance of that original 70s one. So I like that through this element of like, uh, this is kind of the the idea of them disregarding the previous sequels feels very much in vogue with um, modern like comic book storytelling taking over cinema. You know, something that I think you and I decry and sort of like uh, we bemoan about uh, frequently of like how much that's just everywhere. It's so ubiquitous in film is like comic book storytelling, comic book style. Comic book storytelling allows for this sort of like, hey, we're just going to start a new, like you called it, parallel universes that can exist in comic book storytelling. Like Spider-Man can die in one story, but be brought back in another one. And it's just a new take or it's a continuation from something else. Uh, and I guess since we're so inundated in that world and in, in like modern studio filmmaking, if a if a filmmaker, a clever filmmaker with a strong idea to do something like David Gordon Green and Danny McBride, like if they're able to like sort of take that i that style like of what it allows for uh, basically what the audience is willing to go with um i think comic book storytelling does this movie a lot of help in that in that regard like audiences are like i don't care i can disregard all those previous sequels i either haven't seen them or they're right. not that good so why not give me this new take i think i think uh it is like a refreshing uh way to get a movie like this made in modern times. I think, I think they use that very effectively. Yeah. And I think, I think there's, there's inevitably a, a geek backlash and an outrage that is inevitable, but like, will it really impose on ticket sales? No. Cause like, that's such a small cul-de-sac that's sort of talking amongst itself. Right. You know, in terms of like, you really, you can't disregard the Druid, like, you know, <laughs> like from part six like but paul rudd's best performance isn't he in that movie he is in Um, that one (laughs) but like so you're you're always gonna like appeal to some sect and then like outrage another one so like to why not take a chance you know actually and like that's that's something that i think this movie does with like you know mostly a successful outcome, you know, there's, there's certain jerks and sort of turns in like in this movie that I thought didn't necessarily work. I bet and I'm thinking a, of the same one in particular. Yeah, like uh, <laughs> Someone, someone turns a corner in terms of like what, what they're capable of. Are we still thinking of the same thing? Absolutely. I, I, okay. I, I was baffled by that. It did not make much sense <laughs> to me. Well, yeah. And so like, to, to then think back to the original where no turn like that was like happened or was necessary. There's just like a busyness to the new one. Right. That I think is a byproduct of just like modern movies. There needs to be like, there's like infinitely more cops in this movie that are busy running around. Like, you know, their lights flickering and their sirens wailing like through the night. Whereas like the first one, like there's a, there's an eerie emptiness to it. And there's like one cop who seems to like know what's going on. And then I think that lends itself to the nightmare of it, that there's like you, you as the audience member know that there's something menacing this small community, this kind of sleepy community. And that level of quiet, that level of intimacy and scale, I just know that I just don't know if that's possible in terms of resonating with an audience anymore. Like right. that made sense to people who were less crowded, like in terms of like their their just your mental peripheral vision at this point, you know, like <laughs> there 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 was an ability to 
acclimate to a quiet movie to a like slowly paced movie mm. that's just like for a modern audience that's going to give a movie a 77 million dollar opening they need it like fast they need it like they need the cuts to be like hard and like a locker slamming and we're into the next scene and it's just like there <laughs> there is something propulsive about modern movie making that like unless you're doing the exact opposite which i think appeals to far less people nowadays mm. like i you're not going to acclimate to that same level of like elegance that was possible the simplicity in the first one they and they do an impressive job of trying yes but it's just like the what worked about the original also had been replicated so many times that there is stuff in the original version that like doesn't isn't as like resonant because it had been Xerox so many times. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. There's a part where Laurie Strode it like right before it sort of like veers hard into the conclusion where all of her friends who were laid waste to all their bodies start plopping out of like various cabinets and stuff like that. Like you've seen that sequence in every slasher movie since though it was the original, it still has been replicated so many times that it diffuses the original's like you know sort of impact mm. he's like oh right he's like oh that door pops open and all of a sudden this a body falls out and the tongue's hanging out of it like ah oh, come on like it's just a you know there's there's been so many times it's been repeated over and over again that it's like how do you show the new anymore is new possible anymore <laughs> it's a question worth asking i i think yeah that- I wanted to like sort of land on a really fatalistic thing to say, which is uh, that's been my calling card. Is there anything new? Has culture peaked next up on adjust your track? (laughs) (laughs) Well, I, I love that's It's a very appropriate place for you to, for you to want to end it. I think the last thing I want to say, if if I can just fit this in there, because yes, because I think there, it's something that I found um, that felt, Kind of new. I don't. I, I. I might be stretching to say it's new, but within this movie, within this franchise, I liked the idea. Um, it's not necessarily new. Actually, I'm going to drag this out because it's got elements of what I actually think still works about the original Scream, and maybe even more so, New Nightmare, Wes Craven's New Nightmare, where there's a there is a a very what's nice about this new Halloween movie is it's extremely. Well, I would say in comparison to something like Scream, it's very subtle in its meta qualities and what it's commenting on within the story is actually, I think, making a statement or trying to you know point something out about horror movies and horror fandom. This whole movie gets started, Halloween, this new Halloween 2018, because a couple of crime podcast podcasters want to get to know, they want to understand Michael Myers. And then there's this right. new, there's a doctor that's referred to, I think, not very wink, winky to the camera of you're the new Loomis. You know, you're the new Dr. Loomis. Jamie Lee Curtis says that to this doctor there. These characters in the movie do things because they want, or they are also punished, I would say, because they want to understand Michael Myers. And this movie continually wants to reinforce um, the idea of like, what's there to understand? Like even Dr. Loomis, they, they show in this movie had concluded that there was nothing left. Just like get rid of him. Kill. We kill yeah. him. We, we cannot learn from a serial. Some that's just pure evil. So like, I, I thought that was really interesting because it, it goes hand in hand with the trauma survivor element of Laurie Strode because she's hung up on him too, but she's trying to do it to protect. She doesn't want this to happen again. So she's got something else to hang on to, but everybody else is just sort of like whore fans that want to like be around the killer. They want to like glorify him in some weird way. They want to be almost like what Rob Zombie did with the original or I'm sorry, with Rob Zombie's remake where he wanted the original remake. The original remake, to be more confusing, where that one has a whole first half where they're giving you the origin story of Michael Myers as a kid. And I think that's one of the big faults of that movie, because it's it's uh, what David Gordon Green and Danny McBride seem to realize with this one is that, like, you don't need to know more about Mike. What made him what made him scary is the unknown. He just randomly showed up and started killing people again. He wasn't, he wasn't related to Laurie Strode. He just would kill whoever was there. It's the first person he started that he like essentially connects to when he goes back to his hometown in the original. So I liked that this new one really just reinforced like, Hey, stop trying to understand this guy. There's nothing to understand. We need to just get rid of him. And I think that's a pretty powerful and potent thing to, uh, 
link to kind of weave into a horror movie uh, that that sort of subverts and alters and flips certain imagery from the original. And to do that in 2018, I think that's another thing that seems to have resonated um, is that Jamie Lee Curtis is like she's there at the front and center of this movie. And she like represents something, I think, that is just on people's minds right now. So if you can have a bit of escapism, but a like, you know, not to oversell it, but some thematic weight and some at least an attempt at ideas to make you think a little bit more, I guess the, the less simplistic style of this new one than the original, the beauty of the simplicity of the original, you can't recreate it, but at least they tried to sort of have it both ways. And I, I commend, like, I think this is one of David Gordon Green's better efforts in a while. I think like, um, I'm glad to see him get a big hit because he's a director. I want to see, keep, keep doing random stuff. I hope, yeah. I hope he isn't sucked into a Halloween series here or, or other horror movies, but, um, you know, like this is good for him. And I think that's good for movies too. So yeah, you know, there, there is some stuff to, ha- you know, some stuff that can be, uh, some new ground that can be found. Um, but it's just, it has to be different, I guess, is, is the lesson from this one. Yeah. It's also interesting that like, you know, uh, at the, like as much as Halloween, the original was like such a hit. John Carpenter was sort of like maligned, like through a lot of this. He talks about that a lot about how like in the American sort of film industry, he was always like kind of disregarded as like a trash filmmaker and an exploitation filmmaker, and therefore sort of lesser than. And I think you had you had mentioned how the current sort of state of how popular and sort of normalized horror movies have become like now it's just a given that the, these movies will be like smashes. Whereas like, you know, back then, like it was movie to movie, like, and you know, he had, he had made the fog escape from New York. And then the thing, and the thing was like trashed when it first came out, you know, <laughs> now it's regarded as a masterpiece, but it was like, you know, it was, it was overall just sort of like, dismissed until it sort of got traction like through VHS and cable and then repertory screenings, luckily later to give it a sort of second life. But like, yeah, it's it, you know, I, and I think that level of kind of unpredictability um, lended itself to like filmmakers who took more chances. And then now the riffs on those chances taken can have like exciting results. Like with this, you know, as flawed as some of it might be, it still is like an exciting installment in the legacy of like what Halloween's become. Yeah. But it's just like, you know, you still keep looking to the sort of fringes where, you know, like maybe, maybe something new is still possible, you know? Yeah. That's, that's a little bit more hopeful. I'm going to, I'm going to make you land. We're going to land on that note right there, my friend. (laughs) All right. What do you say? Should we wrap it up? Let's do it. All right, man. It's hard to let go. Um, I I love talking about Carpenter. I love talking about that original Halloween, but um, yeah, it's weird to say, it feels like a concession to say like, well, it's not a bad sequel. And in like, in this case, that's kind of enough, you know, like that's the achievement is they actually made a, a pretty like solid sequel. I didn't love this movie like some people, but I'm glad that it exists and it's not terrible. That's, that's something for uh, a franchise as, uh, as just like long in the tooth as this one. So, yeah. So yeah, let's do it. Let's wrap up episode 188 of adjust your tracking before we do though. I just, this is random. I'm just going to geek out a little bit, but I want to give a few shout outs of like, if you liked this new Halloween and you, you sort of are only now maybe wanting to dip your toes into like seventies or early slasher films. There are some things that preceded the original Halloween in the slasher genre that didn't quite make it as uh, big of a deal. Like Halloween made it mainstream in a way and, and, and created this massive ripple effect. But you know that you had mentioned the original Texas chainsaw massacre that precedes it. It's not exactly in the same vein, but it's a slasher movie. There's, there's black Christmas, which is, you know, mm-hmm. a, a holiday. 2006. <laughs> yes. The remake of that. Of course. No, I mean, I think the original Bob Clark with Karen Allen, I think, uh, yeah, yeah. it's the original remake from 2006. <laughs> Shut up. <laughs> uh, the seventies the original is precedes Halloween. And it has that, that holiday themed slasher idea. It's kind of cool to see the nuts and bolts one, uh, the, the early ones that didn't quite break out, but, um, there's another one by Mario Bava called a Bay of blood. And I would say if you like the Friday, the 13th series for any reasons, like a Bay of blood totally is like, I would say the original Friday, the 13th ripped off a ton from it and it precedes it by 
by well, a number of. I years. think there's like direct kills that are like yeah. re- repeated in Friday the Thirteenth from Bay of Blood, right? Yeah, yeah, totally. They, uh, you know, uh, Sean S. Cunningham, uh, I believe, is the director of at least the original Friday the Thirteenth. He he was not afraid to sort of blatantly rip people off. So it's just. Whereas sure. John Carpenter would pay homage or sort of try to do his own thing. You get other directors doing their own, doing other things in, in these other slashes. Yeah. But yeah, he is the original remaker. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. The thing that's a remake. There you go. Um, yeah, it's, do, do you remember that black Christmas? What? Like there's, there's a theory and I think like the, the director, what was the director's name from the original Black Christmas? Bob Clark, who made Porky's in a Christmas story as well. To see the through line? <laughs> <laughs> um, but he apparently was in talks with John Carpenter uh, in like in the mid 70s before Halloween. Oh. And like they, he claims that like they talked about a sequel to Black Christmas being set at Halloween where he breaks out of. Uh, insane asylum and then goes on a killing spree. So he claims that like the Halloween idea was actually like through the collaboration of the two of them. This is all covered in the book shock value. Thank you. Uh, Yes. All about seventies and kind of eighties, like iconic horror filmmaking, which is a great Halloween read Halloween time, not Halloween (laughs) 78 or 2018, but like 78 is definitely covered in shock value. So um, that book is so good. Jason Zinnemann, he's a, he writes about comedy typically for the New York times these days, but yeah, he's that, that book is so good. I was so happy when you, when you loaned that to me back in the day. Yeah. Yeah. No problem. I, that's the, my biggest recommendation. Read shock value. That is a great book. Um, especially if you're getting into the genre, dive back, learn about it. It's there's, there's value there. So just chill to the next episode. Let's now officially do it. We're wrapping up. Episode 188 of Adjust Your Tracking, uh, House Cleaning uh, Round 2. You can find us at theplaylist.net. We're a part of the Playlist Podcast Network. If you're using a podcatcher of your choice, that's where you're going to find episodes of Adjust Your Tracking. If you search the Playlist Podcast Network, you'll find us. You'll find Indie Beat. You'll find uh, our sort of regular playlist episodes by Ryan Oliver. Uh, He's been doing a lot. He's keeping up pace with us, and there's over-under movies. And uh, yeah, you'll get all those shows uh, in that feed. And uh, of course, everything also lives at theplaylist.net. So um, we'd be very thankful if you subscribe, rate, and review our show. Uh, But nowhere near as thankful as I am to just like, Go back in time. Talk about old movies that make us happy, and even some new movies that we can tolerate. Um, to sit here and chat with you, Joe. Oh, thanks, Eric. 